Once more, let us come before God in prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, as you spoke long ago through the voices of your prophets, speak to us here. Speak to us now through the power of your spirit and the promise of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The first scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, chapter 2, reading verses 18 to 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. The second reading from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 8, or Psalm 8, and uh, we'll read responsively and the words will appear on the screens. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortal? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the path. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And from the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 4, and chapter 2, reading verses 5 to 12. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world's. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone has testified somewhere, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And from the Gospels, the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 2 to 16. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Dan, you might want to just leave that slide up for just a couple of seconds. Friends in Christ, what I say to you this morning is proclaimed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you're tuning in from home, there's a different, you have a different, uh, sermon title if you printed out the bulletin. Because on Friday afternoon, Jessica said, what's your sermon title? And having spent a week poring over those texts for some source of great wisdom and inspiration, I was at a loss. I kind of knew where the sermon was going to go, and so I suggested to Jessica that the sermon title would be Focusing on the Divine, and maybe that's still not a bad sermon title. But the one that came to me as I really started working on it was Moses, Calvin, and Jesus walk into a bar. 
Now, before I begin, what do you call a joke that has no punchline? A sermon. Because I don't have a pithy punchline for that. But it is the beginning of that standard joke, isn't it, of some triad of individuals entering into a bar. Moses, Calvin, and Jesus walk into a bar. Nobody's perfect. Those two words I'm sure we have all used, and we use them often, to explain away everything that we do that goes somewhat awry. From missed appointments to broken dishes that slipped out of our hands while we were trying to dry them to dings on the front bumper of the car because that fire hydrant was just a little closer than he seemed. These are words that we use to acknowledge that every that not everything goes as it is planned. They are words that speak to our humanity. We are not automatons that perform limited tasks with laser-like precision, but we are real human beings created in the image of God and along with the gifts of creativity and imagination that are part of being created in the image of God. Well, along with that comes a certain amount, a little margin of error, or at least we hope it's a little margin of error. Then in walks Calvin. In the European tradition, pardon me, the European Reformed tradition, out of which come the churches of the, like the Dutch Reformed Church, the Christian Reformed Church, they uh, give great credence to a, a theological doc, document known as the Canons of Dort. And I'm really upset that, that uh, Gary isn't here this morning to hear me speak about the Canons of Dort because he and I were just speaking about them about uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, but he's not. So he'll have to watch this on the, on the YouTube. But the Canons of Dort are the founding theological documents of the European Reformed tradition in which they articulate what they believe concerning God and God's redemptive love made known to us in Jesus Christ. While we Presbyterians in our tradition have our own subordinate standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the longer and the shorter catechisms, which I'm sure some of you out there memorized in your youth, they, the, the canons of Dort are the, are the European Reformed equivalent to those documents. And conveniently, the canons of Dort can be neatly summarized by an acrostic tulip. Tulip, like the flower. T, total depravity. U, unlimited election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. Now, we're not going to look at all five points of the canons of Dort this morning. Indeed, I could probably take a great deal of time exploring them in much detail. But 
we do need to comment on the first one this morning. T, total depravity. In our little joke set up as Calvin walks into the bar, Calvin's theology begins with this understanding that nobody's perfect. Not just in an incidental and accidental sense, but in a real systematic and theological sense. It's a much larger vision of our mistakes, if you will. It is an articulation that as a result of Adam and Eve's willfulness in the Garden of Eden, all of creation has been stained with sin. And that means all of us, too. Thinking about how perhaps to describe what that, how we might understand that, I was thinking of the fact that during this pandemic, um, as we've been required to wear our masks everywhere that we go and we go indoors and outdoors and we come back in again, many of us who wear eyeglasses have discovered that an ill-fitting mask will cause our glasses to fog up. Likewise, this is likewise the idea of the of total depravity, that we do not truly perceive clearly the world around us as God envisioned it. That like that uh, fog on our glasses from the ill-fitting mask that obscures, our, that obscures our vision, our sinfulness obscures our ability to see and perceive God's good creation. It's the haze that renders everything just a little bit fuzzy and nondescript regardless of how hard we try, the haze on the glasses is still there. The haze through which we view God's creation is still there before us. So we need, we begin with that understanding of a sinfulness in our world. And then with that, Moses walks into our notional bar. Because Moses is identified by Scripture as the giver of God's laws. And the laws of the Hebrew Scripture do two things for us. First, they hold up a glimpse of God's wondrous creation to us, that which we cannot quite see because of the steamy glasses from Calvin's total depravity. And two, the law seeks to set limits around our errors and our sin, around that depravity, to use Calvin's word again. Without our fallen nature, the law of the Hebrew Scriptures would be unnecessary. With our fallen nature, the law of the Hebrew Scriptures is unavoidable. Then, Jesus walks into the bar. Both Calvin and Moses have their role to play in this morning's text and in this morning's understanding of these texts as we seek to put together the pieces of what is happening in this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is a difficult text. That's why I didn't have any hope of a sermon title earlier this week. 
I have preached this text before. It, is, it has never been a good Sunday in church when this text comes up. Just saying. Because it's a difficult text because of the fact that it speaks of divorce. The Pharisees come to Jesus with this question about divorce. But note what Mark says. This is a trick question. So whatever happens next, know that there is some sort of deception that's going to happen in this text. The Pharisees come and they say to Jesus, is it lawful for a man to marry, uh, to divorce his wife? It's a test. The Pharisees know all of the finer points about marriage and divorce. They don't need to go to Jesus to ask this question. They have been the arbiters in these debates. That's what Pharisees do, don't you know? They know, as we read in Genesis, that God forms us into relationships with each and that each of us needs these relationships, deep and intimate and abiding relationships in our lives. And yet, they also know that those relationships can go astray. That in the intimacy of marriage is also the danger of cruelty or abuse or even simply indifference. The relationship of Adam and Eve, that perfect union that we read about in Genesis chapter 2, is God's will. The law permitting divorce, however, is the recognition that God's will is hard. That we are sinful people who live in a sinful world, a world that has that haze over our glasses, so we're never quite clearly focused on what we're supposed to be doing. We are stained by that sin and live in our depravity. I know, that's a Calvin, that's a hard word, depravity. It's got too many corners on it and not enough curves. Save for this reality. It has, it, depravity has nothing to do over anything that we can control. It is the birthmark that comes to us and we all share without doing anything. Moses and Calvin and Jesus walk into this bar. This encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees speaks to everything that is wrong in our human relationships. It speaks of marriage and divorce, but not just marriage and divorce. It speaks of how far all of us have wandered from God's divine will and indeed from our own dreams and our own expectations. That's why the text cuts so deeply because for so many people, it cuts to the bone. No one has ever stood in the front of the sanctuary of a, of a church before all of their friends and families pl planning for a marriage to fail. No one has ever stood in the sanctuary in front of their family and friends and taken their wedding vows with their fingers crossed behind their backs thinking she'll do for now. When we come for marriage, we all long for true partnership and happily 
ever after. And then life, with all of its imperfections, breaks in. And sometimes divorce is the only way out. But the Pharisees come to Jesus with the wrong question. That's why Mark says it's a test. The Pharisees come to Jesus asking these questions about divorce. Whereas Jesus has come into the world not to reveal to us our sinfulness as if he needed to. We all know that well enough, I would suggest. But rather, Jesus comes to show us the kingdom of God. The question is about how do we grow into more perfect union with friends and those around us. And it's not an easy thing. Sometimes we like to make it an easy thing. As preachers, sometimes congregations want it to be an easy thing. They want to hear, sometimes we want sermons like, you know, five, five, five steps to a better marriage. Six ways to raise your, to raise godly children, right? If you look at some websites on the internet, they're just filled with these recipes for perfection. As if we alone can change the one unavoidable reality of our faith. Our total depravity. Man, I wish Calvin had picked a better word. But that reality for us, that we will never be perfect, regardless of how many sermons the minister preaches on the five best ways to have a perfect marriage, you're still going to lose your temper with your spouse from time to time. Or worse. Regardless of how many three steps to raising more faithful Christian kids. From time to time, they're still going to wake up on a Sunday morning and go, but mom, I don't want to go to church this morning. Those are all just part of our existence as human beings. But there's one thing missing. People often speak, look at John Calvin and they think of him as this awful and this horrible and this austere fellow. They hear Calvin's doctrine of, the total, of total depravity and they go, well, clearly there's a guy who had no fun whatsoever. I think maybe it's because in historical artworks like those of, of Calvin's time, color wasn't a big thing. So Calvin is always in black and white. And in black and white, it's, it's a little unforgiving. I think the ladies in, would agree, black and white can be a little unforgiving sometimes. Right? That black and white photo on your driver's license, it does not help at all. Calvin's always in black and white. And so we think Calvin existed in a world that was black 
and white. And that Calvin himself was the proponent of black and white. But Calvin, at, in, at the heart of Calvin's theology, lies grace. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we are sinful. Sometimes we are absolutely despicable human beings. But that's okay if you believe in a God of grace. We cannot save ourselves. God, through Christ, offers us salvation. It's an interesting little twist that Jesus takes, right? He goes from this this. We, we go from this dispute in Mark's gospel with Jesus and the disciples, or sorry, Jesus and the Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce to the little children. Now, remember what we said about little children a couple of weeks ago, and if you weren't with us for that, a quick reminder. In ancient times, the times of Jesus, children weren't the adorable little grandkids that we have today that we fawn over. But they were really seen as kind of unpersons because they did not contribute to the family and to the family's uh, eking out of survival. They were kind of there until they reached the point where they were worth something. Sounds very capitalistic. And so we have this image then of Jesus turning from this debate, this pointless debate that focuses on the wrong things. And then Jesus turning to these children who sit on the margin of their, of their society. And like all children, I'm sure, runny-nosed, running, jumping, noisy, clay-stained children. And then he says, but the, children, but the kingdom of God is of these. These who have no worth in and of themselves, who make no contribution, who do not seem to be worthy, these are the ones who come, who are seen in God's kingdom. They are the ones who can receive grace, who can forgive, and who can be forgiven the wonderful things, right, about our children, is they will walk through the door after school someday and slam it behind them and go, Oh, I hate Joey, and I'm never going to play with Joey again. And then the very next day, they come running through the door, and they go, Mom, can I go over to Joey's house? And do whatever. The miracle of childhood is that ability to shed all of that stuff that we carry in our lives. Would it, would it be so great? Would it be so good that we would all be so blessed? The ability to forgive and to be forgiven to lay aside our own pride long enough to recognize that we do, 
indeed make errors. Moses and Calvin and Jesus sit at a table with bread and with wine and talk about the wonders of creation. They speak of the fallenness of our humanity and they marvel in the grace of God that allows them to be together and invites us to do the same. As we come to the table of our Lord this morning, we come not because we have earned it. It is a gift of God's grace. We come to this table this morning and do not exclude ourselves because we have been so bad that there is no hope for us. For total depravity, according to Calvin, rests upon us all. But here we are welcomed as we are. Broken, yearning, longing for better. And God, Jesus welcomes us here and invites us into his kingdom. Here, anyone who will come and forgive and be forgiven is welcomed into the kingdom of God. So come to this table, eat and drink. For here, Christ makes us whole. Thanks be to God.